This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for August 14th, 2020. New Apple software updates, Tor may not be as private as you think, Alexa skill vulnerabilities, and how to transfer files securely. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm well. Just in case listeners are curious, it's early in the morning for Josh because he's in California, and it's sort of late afternoon for me because I'm in the UK. So so <laughs> I hope you've updated all your devices. We have minor updates, which actually there's no security updates as far as we can tell. There's a small iOS update, 13.6.1, and there is a macOS I like how they call this a supplemental update. macOS Catalina 10.15.6, supplemental update. Minor fixes. One of them in particular is for the new 27-inch iMac that's just out. Yeah, so just a bug fix release, not something you need to worry about installing right away unless you are experiencing one of the bugs that they describe in their release notes. You know, no security issues that are known at this time. Well, actually, if you are getting a new 27-inch iMac, you should update. Well, yeah. What happens is when Apple ships a Mac, the operating system is weeks, maybe months old, depends on how long it's been in the channel. The 27-inch iMac is brand new, so we're assuming it's got a, a version of Mac OS that's quite recent, but it won't be the most recent one. I even remember once, this goes back a ways, do you remember when you paid for a full macOS version, then you got updates, and I right. once bought a MacBook, the white MacBook, and I had to pay because it was the previous operating system? Oh, really? I had to pay to upgrade the operating system. So like it had right been in the channel for a long time. Yeah. Oh, I see. Interesting. I don't remember ever having to do that right after buying a computer. But it uh, was only like 20 euros. It wasn't a lot, but it wasn't free. And I found that right. kind of surprising. And, and I, I hadn't bought it from Apple. I'd bought it from another company. So they'd bought it before the new operating system came out. We don't have to pay for operating systems anymore. And, and people don't really think about that. But what did it cost for macOS back in the day? It was like $129, wasn't it? I, I do remember the early days of uh, macOS 10 uh, when it first came out. In fact, I even paid for the public beta, which I think was $29, if I remember right. And then they gave you a $29 discount, if I remember, on the first official version. So it was like, thank you for paying to test our public beta. And now you can get that savings on the first official operating system. But they couldn't give it away because it was being distributed in physical stores, right? So you couldn't have a store have it for free. They had to charge something so people just didn't take them off the shelves. Yeah, and I, you know, I remember at one point um, early on in the iPhone, they even required you to pay for iOS upgrades because of some supposed accounting thing. They only did that once, and I was going to bring that up. And it was, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Sarbanes-Oxley bill that had something to do with accounting. And I remember at the time, I think 
all my my son had bought an iPod Touch. So we didn't have iPhones at all, but there was a $20 or 20 euro upgrade. It was the only time it happened. And and Apple trying to justify this by some weird accounting thing rather than just fixing their accounting. <laughs> I always thought that was pretty strange, but thankfully that didn't last long. And uh, Apple somehow figured out how accounting is supposed to work for releasing free updates. Yeah. As long as we're talking about Apple and money, Bloomberg has an article that just came out today saying that Apple ready subscription bundles to boost digital services. Now, we've been talking about this for a while. I think last year, I'll put a link into the show notes, um, an article I wrote on the Intego Mac security blog. Um, there's been a lot of talk of a sort of Apple Prime bundle. It's apparently this is going to be called Apple One. The idea is to bundle all these services that either we use many of them or Apple wants us to use all of them. We've got Apple Music, Apple TV+, Apple News+, uh, Apple Arcade, iCloud Storage. And so they're talking about a basic package to include Apple Music and Apple TV+. My guess is it won't cost much more than Apple Music because they really need people to subscribe to Apple+. And right now, there's not a lot of compelling content. A more expensive variation, according to the article, will have those services plus Apple Arcade. And I think it's good that they're not requiring a bundle with Apple Arcade because you're either a gamer or you're not. Another tier will have Apple News Plus and then another one with extra iCloud storage. Now, what bothers me here is are they going to have four tiers? That's not a bundle. That's just you're adding on a bunch of services. For me, a bundle is you throw everything together and you make it worthwhile for everyone. I like what you've said about this in the past, um, uh, that it would make sense for Apple to sort of put a bunch of these things together. They, Apple is really pushing a lot of services these days, and it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense for a lot of people to subscribe to a whole bunch of different things. Like I, I don't particularly need additional iCloud storage. My wife does. Um, but, um, you know, do we want Apple TV plus, um, we've kind of, it's not been quite worth it to us to, to pay for it. Um, so we haven't done that yet and we haven't bought a new device recently, but if they were to bundle a lot of things together for the right price, and that's always the key for me is if Apple can do this at just the right price, that it makes sense for a lot of people, then this could be a really good thing because now people who weren't paying for any of these subscriptions will now have a subscription that they'll probably never cancel because they're going to continue using Apple devices. Well, I think Apple Music is really the starter because a lot of people are going to have an Apple Music subscription. Um, Apple TV Plus, as I said, and you said it's just not that compelling enough. And, and we've gotten it for free since last year. Otherwise, it's $5 a month. Apple Arcade, I think, is $5 a month. And while I wouldn't mind occasionally having access to games, I'm just not enough of a gamer that I'm going to pay for it. Apple News Plus is really not successful. Um, people just don't understand the service. And it's like the iCloud storage, Apple, come on. It's been five gigabytes since forever. There should really be more storage by default. I mean, they sound like they're making it complicated, like you start with the basic and add on and add on and add on. All of these things together to make it a worthwhile bundle, what would you say the discount has to be if you're putting everything in there? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I, if Apple News Plus were part of the bundle, I think I would start using Apple News. I, I don't really even use the app hardly at all. Um, but... Um, 
you know, I don't know. I, I would really have to see a breakdown and and look at it closely to, to see whether it really made sense for me. But yeah, maybe a 50% discount on all of it. Maybe that would make sense. Yeah, um, that could tempt me. So Apple Music is 10 bucks. Apple TV Plus is five. Apple Arcade is five. That's 20. Apple News Plus is 10. That's 30. And extra iCloud storage. Well, you get 200 gigabytes for $3 a month. So $33 a month for all of that, unless they're offering more iCloud storage. If it was 15, I'd say, yeah, because I'm already paying 10 for Apple Music. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's that sounds pretty compelling. I think it's probably worth it. I, I, honestly, if if I had the additional iCloud storage, I would use it. Um, it it's just that I'm... I'm cheap and I haven't decided I want to <laughs> want to pay for that for, uh, unless I, you know, unless I really need to, unless there's a compelling reason. But if I'm getting it as part of a bundle, I think I would actually exactly. use it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I use mine because my photo library is like 70 gigabytes. So mm-hmm. I, I went from the free five to the 50. Now I'm up to the 200, which I only use half of. To be fair, if I had more iCloud storage, I might want to use it to store more files instead of Dropbox and OneDrive that I use. I don't pay for Dropbox because I don't need two terabytes and I'm not going to pay 10 bucks a month for Dropbox. So I can only use it on two devices, even though we use it, for example, to exchange files for the podcast. And Dropbox is so ubiquitous that everyone uses it. But if I had a lot more iCloud storage, I might move all my files there. Oh, wow. That's that's kind of interesting. I hadn't really even thought about that, but but as a, a potential replacement almost for a service like Dropbox, that, that could be kind of interesting. Okay, so we're going to go through some news this week. Um, have I been pwned is going open source. Is that really the pr- – pwned, is that really the pronunciation? Is yeah. it ever Is it even meant to be pronounced out loud? So it's the word owned when, when you're owned, someone is taking control of your computer. But in hacker spelling, it's with a P, so pwned. I, well, I have uh, – there are people who will argue no, no. It's just supposed to be said owned, but – I mean, when you're talking about a website that has that as part of the URL, I kind of feel like it's important to to pronounce the P because otherwise people will try to go to haveibeenowned.com with an O. And, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's going open source, not the database, but the code that manages it. Well, that's the plan anyway. So Troy Hunt uh, tried to sell his Have I Been Pwned service um, and about a year ago, I believe. And he uh, it basically the deal fell through. He couldn't find a buyer that was able to meet sort of his demands. He has certain um, kind of like moral and ethical kind of things that he wants to make sure uh, are part of the acquisition if, if he were to sell off his, his service. Um, basically these, these are, this is a service that deals with people's passwords and usernames and email addresses. This is a lot of really personally identifiable information and really sensitive information. Also remember some of the things that are in this database have included like the Ashley Madison breach and people don't, you know, want that kind of information exposed. Ashley Madison, of course, is a service uh, for uh, cheating for spouses to, to cheat on, on, uh, on each other and so forth. So, I mean, there's that kind of level of sensitive information. Um, there have been porn sites that have been breached and people don't necessarily want that kind of information to get out about them, uh, particularly if they're politicians or other people in the spotlight. So 
basically this never really worked out the way that Troy wanted it to. Um, the service was kind of just getting too big for one guy to manage because remember he has a day job too. Um, and so, um, basically what this article says is that he's eventually planning to open source it, uh, the, the back end of it. So it doesn't sound like he's going to be giving away all the databases, but he is going to make, uh, the, the back end of the website available. So if someone else wanted to run a similar service and sort of, um, be the spiritual successor, if he decides that he's not going to update the, have I been pwned databases anymore? Um, then, you know, somebody could potentially do that at some point in the future. So he hasn't released the source code yet, but he's planning to do it eventually. And that's kind of basically what the announcement is. Okay, link in the show notes. Now, we've got a story here, and I just don't understand anything about it. So even reading this headline, and and I just don't know what it means, a mysterious group has hijacked Tor exit nodes to perform SSL stripping attacks. Can you translate this? Sure. Okay, so I thought this was worth mentioning. Uh, A lot of privacy advocates use Tor. Tor originally stood for the Onion Router, and uh, and Tor is uh, is basically a distributed network that you can use. I, I don't want to say it's like a VPN because it's very different in very important fundamental ways from how a VPN works. We've talked about VPNs a lot on the show, where basically um, with a VPN you're connecting to a, a a trusted server that's run by by somebody. It could be either a company that you work for, or in the case of a personal VPN service. Uh, a company that you trust um, to to uh, to handle all your traffic before it gets out to the public internet. Um, with Tor, it works quite a bit differently. Um, Tor, uh, you have these relay nodes, so like computers across the internet that are handling your traffic and forwarding it on to another node, to another node, another computer, in other words, and then eventually it gets out to the public internet. Can anyone volunteer to be a Tor node? Yes. And that's one of the reasons why Tor is not necessarily very good for your privacy or security. Uh, Because a lot of people tend to assume, oh, well, because it's hopping around all over the internet before it finally goes out to the internet, that must mean that it's safe and nobody can ever get my IP address. And so therefore, it's the most private, best way to browse, right, to use Tor. Well, um, there have been a number of problems, a number of flaws found in Tor over the years. And the most recent one uh, is that evidently there's a hacking group. Uh, we don't know much about them, um, but uh, there's there's evidently a person or a group that is creating their own Tor nodes specifically for the purpose of downgrading your HTTPS connections to HTTP where possible, and then looking through the contents of the web pages that you're trying to access and trying to find Bitcoin addresses. And if it finds them, it replaces them with the attacker's Bitcoin addresses. So basically the whole purpose of this attack is that uh, they're trying to make some money for themselves and trick people into um, giving them Bitcoin instead of the intended party. Dude, seriously? Seriously. <laughs> and oh, what, what you're describing sounds to me like something the NSA would want to do. 
Well, maybe, I guess, if they wanted a bunch of Bitcoins, sure. No, but not for Bitcoin, just to be able to get more oh. data and traffic and, and get information on people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and it's been long speculated and uh, and theorized that probably a lot of the Tor Relay and exit nodes that are out there are probably run by government entities, whether it's the U.S. government or others. Um, so yet another reason to be <laughs> cautious about your use of Tor. Um, by the way, a, a lot of people do use Tor for, um, for illegal activities, of course. And, and so one of the reasons why a government entity might want to run their own relays is to, uh, to identify, for example, people who are running child pornography rings and things like that. You know, so there are, uh, great reasons why a government entity might want to uh, intercept some of this traffic and try to figure out who these bad guys are. Is this part of what, uh, what when you hear people on the news talking about the dark web, is that what Tor is? Um, well, there are th- websites that can only be accessed through Tor. And that's a generally what people are referring to when they're talking about the dark web. Um, okay. Yeah. So uh, sometimes you'll, you'll see a dot onion website, for example. Um, that's not a site that generally you can get to just uh, um, on the public internet. You have to go through Tor to be able to access a site like that. The one thing also that I wanted to mention about this is that this particular attack group that's swapping out Bitcoin addresses at one point in May, they uh, evidently, according to one researcher, they had control of 24% of all Tor relay nodes. Uh, that means there's a, there's a pretty good chance if you're going, because the way Tor works is you're hopping through multiple uh, computers before you get out to the internet. So it's most likely that anytime you were using Tor, you were going through one of these relay nodes. Yeah. Yeah, and right now they're, they still operate about 10%, according to that researcher. So, wow. yep. So think twice about using Tor if you really value your privacy and security. Okay, we're going to take a break. After the break, we're going to talk about some Alexa issues, and then we're going to tell you how you can send files securely without using Tor. You already know that Intego loves Macs. After all, Intego has been making world-class Mac security software since 1997. But did you know that Intego Antivirus is also available for Microsoft Windows? If you've got Windows running on your Mac, either in Boot Camp or in a virtual machine like Parallels, VMware, or VirtualBox, make sure to protect it from malware just like you protect macOS with Intego Security Software. Intego Antivirus for Windows is also a great solution for your friends and family members with Windows PCs. Download a free trial of Intego Antivirus for Windows today, and when you're ready to buy, use the link in the show notes for a special discount. Don't use Windows? Don't worry. We've still got a great deal for you. First-time buyers of Mac Premium Bundle X9 can get Intego's powerful Mac security and utility suite at an incredible 40% savings by using coupon code PODCAST20 at checkout. Intego, makers of the best protection software for Mac, and now for Windows, too. Okay, so we've had Zoom zingers and Google gotchas, but we haven't come up with anything yet for Amazon. I don't, I, I don't have any inspiration, but maybe in the future we'll have one. We've got a story, uh, vulnerabilities found on Amazon's Alexa, Essentially, there are ways, there are lots of acronyms in the story that we're going to link to, but there are ways that people can 
sort of hack things and get Alexa's skills to be replaced with malicious skills. This is pretty bad. And without getting into like too many of the really technical details, because the uh, the article that we'll link to, if you want the really technical stuff, it's all there. And all the acronyms. All the acronyms. Yeah, there's a lot of cross-site, cross-origin, this and that. Um, but but the, the gist of it is some researchers at Checkpoint found that there are several vulnerabilities that make it possible, theoretically, for an attacker to do things like the following. Get a list of all installed skills on the user's Alexa account. Now, remember, uh, if, if you're not using uh, an Alexa-enabled device, a skill is basically just sort of like an app that you can add um, to ad- add some additional functionality to your Echo device. Um, get a list of all installed skills. Get the victim's voice history. Uh oh, that doesn't sound good. So everything you say to your Alexa device, <laughs> right? Get the victim's personal information, and uh, the way that they describe that, um, they they talk about how there are skills like banking skills. I can't even believe that that exists. But apparently, um, you can ask, uh, you know, your Echo for your bank account um, balance, and uh, there's there's skills for that. I don't know why you would do that, but you can do that. So there's certain skills that may ask for certain types of personal information. And so, of course, you could get personal information from people based on that as well. Um, But that's not all. There's a couple of other things that it can do. It can uh, silently remove an installed skill. This is one of the potential attack scenarios. And you can silently install skills on someone's device. Now, one attack that they describe is that if you remove a skill and replace it with one that functionally seems exactly the same, that has the same sort of skill name, so you can activate it the same way using the same voice command, um, then you could potentially add some malicious code into that skill and the user would be none the wiser. And so you'll say the same thing to invoke that skill and it'll end up invoking the malicious skill. Right. And and so, for example, maybe it'll siphon off something that you said to some, you know, uh, attacker or something like that. So maybe they won't even have to do the accessing your voice history part of the attack. Um, so this is all very interesting stuff. And they've talked, um, they've given a lot of details on how these sorts of attacks could be carried out. In the article we linked to from Checkpoint Research, there are a lot of details. If you're not a security specialist, you may not understand it, but just read through it and see the kind of things that they can do. And you're going to just dump your Alexa device. <laughs> well, it is important to note that they Checkpoint says that they reported these vulnerabilities to Amazon in June and Amazon has fixed the issue. So they're there was sort of a main underlying issue that uh, needed to be resolved here. Uh, and apparently Amazon did take care of that major issue. Um, so you theoretically shouldn't be able to execute any of these attacks today, but it was possible a couple of months ago. And, you know, uh, researchers are going to probably look for other ways to do attacks like this in the future. But it is interesting to note that just as of a couple of months ago, these things were possible. And it shows the risks of using these devices. I will never get an Alexa device. Okay, how to send files securely. And we were talking about this a few weeks ago. It's There are lots of ways to send files securely. Let's say you need to send important files to someone 
tax information files, accounting files, a contract, um, specs for a job that you're doing, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of people working from home, you may not have the option to meet someone and give them a flash drive or, you know, give them a hard drive if you have a lot. And there are a lot of ways that you can send files securely. Um, I want to start with email because people always say that email isn't secure. But if you use a Mac and you're sending files to someone else who's using a Mac, you can make an encrypted disk image. With 256-bit AES encryption, no one's going to crack that encrypted disk image. Now, a disk image doesn't have to be big. You could have a file that's a megabyte and put it in a disk image that's going to just be a little bit larger. What you do need to do is give the password to the person who you're sending the disk image to. But there's lots of ways to do that. You can do it over the phone. You can use messages or Signal or Slack or other encrypted messaging services. So you can send a really secure password that you can't spell out. Right. And an important point here is that you definitely do not want to send the password for your encrypted disk image in the same email or even in a separate email to the same person (laughs) because that kind of defeats the whole purpose. Because if somebody gets into their email account or your email account, then they can just download that disk image and they'll know the password already. So you need to use a different channel, for example, an iMessage or uh, a message on a secure messaging platform like Signal, for example. It's also important to mention that your emails go through a lot of mail servers around the world, and these attachments can be sitting on multiple servers. And if you have that encrypted disk image, that protects it everywhere. Yeah, and you mentioned that a lot of people point out that mail is not inherently secure. Email is not. Um, There was uh, just recently, I remember hearing about an attack where in real life, this actually happened where somebody had an email that was sitting on a server. It was modified in transit before being sent uh, off to uh, to the intended recipient. And that can happen. It's very rare that something like that happens, but it is possible. It does happen. So you may wonder, well, my files are too big to send by email. Um, If you're on a Mac, you can use Apple's MailDrop to send attachments that are up to five gigabytes. Have you ever gotten an email with a MailDrop attachment? Hmm. I'm trying to think if I have. I don't think so. When you do, you get an intensely long link. It's like 800 characters long. It's a very complicated link. Anyone who gets the email can download this file, and it stays up for 30 minutes. So you need to be aware of that. But again, if it's an encrypted disk image and no one else gets the password, then it's still safe. Another really useful way, and for for files that aren't too large, is to use secure messaging. So when we're recording this podcast, we're talking to each other over Skype so we can see each other. If I were to drop a file into the chat in Skype and send it to you, you could get it. And it would be encrypted in transit, so no one can get a hold of it. The same thing is with messages. Um, Now, one of the problems is that all of these uh, services have file size limits. Apple limits messages attachments to 100 megabytes. Now, in most cases, that's fine. You can send a zip archive or, again, a disk image. In most cases, your files aren't going to be that big. One thing that I, I think is really interesting to look at is that there are some services that are specifically designed, their whole purpose is to let you send files that are larger, let's say two gigabytes or or bigger than that even. And there are services, I think we might have mentioned Firefox Send at one point on the podcast. Currently, that service is not active because it turns out that when you make a service like this available to anybody without 
having to sign up for an account, it can be automated. And so bad guys were using it to send malware with one time expiring links and that kind of thing. So they've temporarily shut down the service. They're planning to relaunch it, but it will require you to log in in the future. But Firefox send was until recently one good option for that. And eventually, supposedly they're going to reopen that, but there are other options too. Right. So I mentioned two in the article. WeTransfer lets you send up to two gigabytes at a time. This is with a free account. If you pay for WeTransfer Pro, you can send 20 gigabytes and you can have a total of a terabyte of storage. Send Safely lets you send up to 50 gigabytes a month for free. And there are a number of paid tiers. Now, some of these services have really good features. In fact, Firefox Send had this kind of feature. With WeTransfer Pro, you can password protect the files. So you send a link to someone to download the files, but they'll need to enter a password. Send safely lets you set an expiration date. So let's say I'm sending you a file, but I'm only going to let you access it for 24 hours because you don't want it to sit around. Um, Firefox Send had both of these, but again, it's not available right now. So cloud storage services, uh, I mentioned earlier in the first part of the episode that I use Dropbox. We use Dropbox to to send files to each other for the podcast. Um, I use OneDrive. I've got iCloud Drive and Google Drive. I've got four cloud services. All of these services encrypt files end-to-end encryption. It's really easy to share files from different services. Now, how easy it is depends. So Dropbox is really practical because it's got Finder integration. So you can put a file anywhere in your Dropbox folder. You right-click on it, copy Dropbox link, and then you send a link to someone. Now, of course, remember, it depends on how you send the link, because if you send this by email and someone else intercepts, they can download it. So you might want to only send it by messages or some other secure method. OneDrive gives you really good options. Um, It's harder to send files because you have to do it from a browser. Um, But you can set a password and an expiration date when you share files from your OneDrive. Yeah, I I like that. I think it's really important to um, have those kind of features. Um, You may not necessarily always need to set a password and an expiration date, but uh, I I do like the idea of, uh, you know, temporary links because let's say that you're you're sending an email to somebody and you just want to include a link so they can download it. You know they're only going to download it once and they're not going to ever need to download it again after that. Um, well, an expiring link is a really good way to do that because you'll you'll know that the recipient got it um, and uh, and then you know there you can just have it automatically expire. So you don't even need to worry about it. If, if your email account or theirs gets compromised at some point in the future, uh, you know, somebody going back and looking through those links won't be able to download that file. Right. Now, of course, it's up to you to remember to delete the files, right? But it's better to, to have that limitation, that expiration date. Um, so iCloud Drive is a bit different from the other storage services. It, it's a little more complicated to share. And and one thing I found in doing some tests for this article is if I want to share, say, a pages or a numbers file, iCloud wants to share the file for someone to collaborate on the web. They don't want to actually send the file. So let's say, Josh, I wanted to send you a pages file for a document that I've drafted. But if I don't want it to be on the web for you to access and edit, but I want you to actually have the file, I could just encrypt it in a zip archive and send it. Um, from iCloud Drive. So you click the share button, you choose who you're going to send it to. I find it a little clunky because Apple's approach to sharing isn't as easy as, say, Dropbox. 
um, or OneDrive. Now you can share a little bit differently with iCloud on the web, but it's very inconsistent from uh, doing it on your Mac to doing it on your your iPhone um, to doing it on the web. Yeah, it is kind of interesting that they default to uh, sharing a document in such a way that anyone you share it with has edit access. Well, it's only for particular types of documents. It's for Apple's iWork documents because they have this, I think they call it iWork in the cloud. And I use this with some projects. I, I create a pages document, then I put it online so someone can edit it. And that way it maintains the integrity of the document that you're not sending a document back and forth. But sometimes you do want to send that document back and forth. Right, right. I've used this also that uh, similar functionality with Apple's notes as well. So you can you can start writing a note, you can share it with somebody else, and then you can both collaborate on that same note. Right. And so finally, if you often share files with someone, I think the easiest way is to create a shared folder, whether it's Dropbox, OneDrive, iCloud Drive, Google Drive. You create shared folders, could be with one person, it could be with 10 or 100. I don't know what the limitations are on the different services. But that way, you just drop the files in and other people, they either get notifications or they know to check tomorrow to get the files. So for example, we're going to drop our podcast files that we've recorded into a Dropbox folder. Our producer, Victor, is going to get the files from that folder, and he's going to edit the podcast, drop the final file into the folder, and I'll pick it up tomorrow morning to be able to publish it. You don't have to worry about sending links and clicking things. It's just it's just in the finder. That's a very useful thing. I've been using that for a very long time. Probably one of the first services that I really started using that kind of a shared folder thing with was Dropbox because it's it's been around a while at this point. And, uh, and it's very convenient. If you've got a lot of files, it makes a lot of sense to, to use a shared folder. Okay, that's enough for this week. Um, link in the show notes to my article, How to Send Files Securely, links to all the other news. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com